The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. We have received the reconciliation that we may now walk, not away from God as if released from a prison, but with God as His children in His Son. Because we are justified, we are to be holy, separated from sin, separated unto God not as a mere indication that our faith is real and that therefore we are legally safe, but because we were justified for this very purpose that we might be holy. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Pardon for Sin and Newness of Life. A prisoner on death row could receive a full pardon and be set free. If he is merely released from prison into society, he could fall back into crime and go back to the penitentiary. But if he is set free and given a good job, he can make the most of his opportunity and begin a new life. If Jesus Christ has pardoned you and sent you free, you are not to fall back into a life of sin. Have you experienced the glorious newness of life in Christ? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Pardon for Sin and Newness of Life. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee today for all that thou hast revealed of thyself in nature, but we thank thee even more for all that thou hast revealed of thyself in the Word. We pray thee today for the lost who are prisoners of their natural religion, and ask thee that thou mayest bring many to see the cross, the poured out life blood of the Savior, and the redemption that has been provided through his death. Build thy children in the faith, that we may be true witnesses for thee. We ask it all through Jesus Christ our Lord, in his name and for his sake. Amen. We've come today to this study in Romans 6.3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? For the past several studies, we have followed the thesis of our identification with Christ in various phases of his eternal work. The portion of our text which states that we were baptized into Christ is one that covers the entire eternal work and being of our Savior. Being placed in Christ, we are indeed in him from eternity to eternity. Taking these words as our point of departure, we have ranged the word of God 
to see our identification into his eternal purpose, into his virgin birth, his circumcision, his increase in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man, his own public manifestation and ministry, and into his sufferings for righteousness' sake. All of that and more, to which we shall return in a later study, is involved in the phrase, baptized into Christ. And the second half of the verse is included in the first half, and is no more than a detail thereof. Let me set forth this truth in parallel sentences. What? Know ye not that as many of you as are enrolled as a student in high school are enrolled in an English class? Yes, you say that's true. But don't tell me that going to high school is nothing but an English class. It is also a part of growing up. It includes also some history, some mathematics, and some extracurricular activities. There are rallies and sports and association with teachers and other pupils. Being enrolled into high school includes enrollment into English classes, but it includes much more. In like manner, we may comprehend our text, What? Know ye not that so many of us as were identified into Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit were thereby identified into his death, among other things? Now this meaning of the phrase is all the more evident by the meaning of the word that is used at the beginning of the sentence. We read, Know ye not? But the Greek is clearly, Are you ignorant? Clearly, God wants us to know without question that we have a perfect position in Christ. Here we see the raising of the superstructure of the whole life of faith. But it must be comprehended that the foundation is back in the previous chapter and that we have been joined to Christ, our federal head, and that we are completely in him. All of the practical outworking of the Christian life must be built solidly on the doctrine of our complete union with Christ. We are identified with our Lord in his death. This is the reason why we will not continue in sin, that grace may abound. Our justification is not an end in itself, but it is a means to a greater end. And the true purpose of our salvation is, first of all, holiness in the life of the believer. As Bishop Mole has said, we are accepted that we may be possessed, and possessed after the manner not of a mechanical article, but of an organic limb. The grapes upon a vine are not merely a living token that the tree is a vine and is alive. They are the product for which the vine exists. It is a thing not to be thought of that the sinner should accept justification and live to himself. It is a moral contradiction of the very deepest kind and cannot be entertained without betraying an initial error in the man's whole spiritual creed. Our identification into the death of Christ was, first, the removal of our guilt. The ground of our justification lies in the fact that the Savior took our sin, not merely our sins, but our sin, and bore it upon the cross. The difference between sin and sins is an essential one. A sin, terrible as it may be, is no more than a breaking out on the skin. The moral code of the world consists in pride over the fact that breaking out in pimples is not so terrible as breaking out in boils. Society tolerates the little blemishes, and in some generations the style has been to put tiny black patches over the pimples and call them beauty spots. Society sends you to prison when the boils break out on the face where all may see. 
But if one is careful to use the right salve, put out by Dun and Bradstreet or by the Social Register, one is as likely to land in Congress as in Sing Sing. God never deals with sins in any man until he has dealt with sin. Sin is the poison in the bloodstream. It is not the boil breaking out. We will not concern ourselves here with God's dealings with sin and sins in those whom he has called vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Most certainly, however, the sin of all those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world was placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by God the Father himself, and the Savior was put to death in order to remove the entire guilt from every believer. This was the work of God the Father. The wicked hands of man could never have laid hold upon the Savior if he had not been delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, as Peter said on the day of Pentecost. This putting to death of the Son of God by the Father Judge was the judicial act which forever removed all guilt from the believer and made it possible for us to stand cleansed forever. Isaac Watts wrote, My soul looks back to see the burden thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and knows her guilt was there. It is the understanding of this truth that lets the soul enter into peace with God. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Because of the full nature of all that God did for us in placing our guilt on Christ and in identifying us with the Savior in his work so that our guilt can never come upon us again, we are absolutely secure in him. There was a story current in the newspapers a few years ago that can serve as an example. A man who had a cleaning and dyeing business was forced to take his accounts home one night because of the illness of his bookkeeper. Quite by mistake, he sent out several hundred statements to people who had already received similar statements some weeks before. Some people wrote in or called in and questioned their bills, showing receipts that proved them paid. He explained the error to them, but to his amazement he discovered that about one-third of the accounts were met and paid a second time. People were careless about their own bookkeeping and relied upon the honesty of the man and sent in their checks a second time. He soon arranged a system whereby he sent out bills promptly on the first of each month, but included the work that had been done over a period of about 35 to 40 days. When anyone complained, he took his name off this special list and sent him correct bills thereafter, but his list of those who paid double was a profitable one for him. One day, however, four men came into the clubhouse after playing golf. One of them pulled an envelope out of his pocket and said, I think so-and-so has a very poor bookkeeper. I think I paid that cleaning bill last month. Another man said, I had exactly the same experience with him. A third man said, so did I. They all agreed that it looked rather crooked, and when more men came into the locker room and joined in the conversation, they decided to turn the matter over to the district attorney. It was not long before an investigation brought up the indisputable evidence of the systematic practice of collecting accounts twice and the man was sent to prison. But is it not a fact that the man who holds that a believer may get out of the body of Christ may undo the baptism of the Holy Spirit and leave the identification with Christ on the cross is in reality making out that God is a chiseler who, having collected the account in full from the Savior, 
now seeks to collect a second time on an account which he himself once receipted in full by the resurrection of his son from the dead. They send men to prison for such actions. Shall we make such a charge against God? Never. What God does is well done and eternally done. He never started anything that he did not finish. The Christian has been identified with the death of Christ in the complete removal of his guilt and his consequent justification in the sight of God. When we were saved, it was not a matter of our salvation from birth to the date of our conversion. When we were saved, we were looked upon by God in the totality of our existence. The entire guilt of our whole life of sin was laid on Christ when he hung on the cross. And when, in time, we came to be born, and then to be born again, the Holy Spirit applied his work to us, and we were seen by God as guiltless because justified. In other words, if you're 20 years old when you are born again, it does not mean that you're pardoned from the sins that you've committed from the time you're born till the time you're 20, but that you are accepted in the totality of your existence and that pardon is for you as a person in your entire life history and that God sees you in Christ. There's only one set of conditions imaginable in which the true believer could lose his eternal life and become lost. I can illustrate that set of conditions by a story. Several years ago, I spent more than a year in visiting the mission fields of Asia. My wife and the four small children spent the year in Berlin, Germany, and I joined them there when I had completed my missionary journey. The children took me to see all the places in which they were interested, and especially they took me to the famous zoological gardens and the playground there where they had spent so much of their time. I took some moving pictures of their favorite haunts and their favorite animals. Among the shots I made was one of the feeding of Roland, the famous sea elephant, one of the largest beasts ever in captivity. The keeper came out with a bucket of fish and began throwing them through the air to Roland, who caught them very adeptly. Little by little, the keeper threw the fish up an inclined path, and Roland was finally some 15 feet above the water, and from his high perch launched his great body weighing almost two tons into the pool beneath. There was a mighty splash, and the crowd was greatly amused and pleased. When we returned home to America some time later, we showed those movies. When we had finished the sequence of the sea elephant, I stopped the machine, pressed the reverse lever, and then ran the picture backwards. Roland emerged from the pool in a backward leap to his high perch and began spitting fish to the keeper, who seemingly caught them all and placed them in his bucket. The children were wildly delighted, and that scene was frequently replayed over the course of the years. But while a film may run in reverse, it is impossible to reverse time itself. We can never have 1950 or 1940 or 1930 again. This is why our position in Christ is so secure. In order for me to be lost, or for you to be lost if you are now a true believer, it would be necessary for the following to take place. God would have to run backwards all of the time in which Jesus Christ lived. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God the Father seated upon the throne of his heaven, interceding for us, would have to rise from that throne. He would have to back up descending to earth, reversing the ascension which the disciples saw from the Mount of Olives. He would have to go backwards through the days of his resurrection ministry, 
draw in the breath which he breathed on them on that first resurrection day. He would have to go back to the tomb and enter the grave clothes with his body, while his soul would have to go back to paradise in hell and then return to his body, which would have been put back on the cross, dead. He would have to undo the six hours of suffering and come down from the cross on the other side. The nails would be withdrawn from his hands and his feet, and the wounds would be closed. If all that happened, it would then be possible for a believer to be lost. Then and then only could a believer lose his salvation. But such a reversal will never take place. Jesus Christ has died, and he will die no more. And it is into that finished work that we are identified, and our guilt is gone forever. And now, thank God, I can go on to tell you the second glorious result of our identification into the death of Christ. For there are two results of our union with him in his death, and these are the two limbs on which we are to go forward in the Christian walk. Solomon said, The legs of the lame are not equal. So is a parable in the mouth of fools. And this great doctrine of our identification in the death of Christ must never be put out of balance, or else it will be a lame walk that the Christian will have. For in addition to our identification by the Holy Spirit into the death of Christ for freedom from guilt, we are identified by the Holy Spirit into the death of Christ for our own death. It is this that will make it possible for us to walk in newness of life with the risen Savior. As I see it, our crucifixion with Christ must be done in two ways. It will be done once for all in principle, and then there must be our moment-by-moment -moment ascent to the principle in practice. Before we are saved, our heart is a waste and desolation, and darkness is upon the face of the deep of our hearts. And then the God who commands the light to shine out of darkness shines in our hearts. Our first sight after seeing the Savior is one of intense horror. We see some of the depths of our Adamic nature. We slide swiftly from Romans 6 into Romans 7. Did we but know it, the very fact that we are there proves that we have been saved. The unsaved man will never have the struggle which is described in that terrible seventh chapter of Romans. We see Christ, and then we see ourselves. There are two totally different factors in seeing. They are light and sight. Light has long since come into the world, lighting every man. But all that light could do was to illuminate the horror of great darkness that is the human heart. Sight comes with the new birth. And the first thing that the spiritual eyes can see after they have looked upon the Savior is the whole of the pit from which we have been digged. Some of us stand there dizzily sobbing for a while. Some of you may be at that point today. Remember that your tears of repentance are a proof of salvation. The unsaved man may know the sharp bite of remorse, but he never knows the godly sorrow that worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. That repentance can only come after you are saved. I read a strange story years ago of a young man who entered a long period of amnesia because of a blow on the head from a fall. He was 18 when it happened, but in the new life, which he still lived amid old surroundings, he could remember nothing that had happened before the blow. At the moment it took place, he'd been on a hay wagon, asking someone to hand him a pitchfork 
that he might level the load. He had cried out, Hand me that fork and I will. And then he fell. Ten years passed, during which he formed a new life. But there came a day when there was another accident. In a fight, he received a sharp blow that knocked him to the ground. His head struck a stone and he cried out, finishing the sentence he had started ten years before, Spread the hay! He arose, thinking he was still eighteen years old and on top of the hay wagon. Let me apply this illustration. The blow that struck the race in Adam made all of his sons unconscious of the true nature and being of God. In that unconsciousness we were born, and in that unconsciousness we live until the moment we are saved. Immediately we are made aware of the holiness of God. We go back to a comprehension of our own creaturehood and our own total dependence upon the Savior. Let me change the figure to that of a mountain-climbing expedition. We are roped to our companions and we are climbing steadily when suddenly, all at once, a tremendous experience comes to us. God plants eternal life within us and with that life comes sight. We glance at the Savior and realize that we're being held, but we look down and see that there is a depth of 20 or 30 feet below us and that we're hanging in midair. We look back in terror to the one who is holding us and we take a little confidence. Then we look down again and see that the distance below us is really a hundred feet. We look to the Savior, and when next we look beneath us, we find that had we fallen, we would not have stopped at the ledge, but would have gone down a thousand feet. We look to the Savior, ever more sure that we are being safely held, and he begins to carry us across the face of the rock, telling us where we are to plant our feet. Whenever we slip, we have a new and frightening consciousness of the depth that is beneath us. The whole purpose of the message of sanctification, as I conceive it, is the development in souls of the truth that is found in the last verse of Habakkuk. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places. When the life of Christ first comes to us, it brings the consciousness that there is nothing beneath us of our old life that can in any wise support us. Some Christians struggle, claw with their hands, thrash with their feet, and take a long time to come to rest in him who is holding them. When you stop resting in Christ and step out on your own, you'll find yourself in the place of struggle and will undergo the wrenching nausea of the pit of Romans 7. But always it is possible to get back into the place of rest, quick as a look. David spun about for a while in his experience with God, and he first reached the place where we hear him say, perhaps panting a bit, I shall not be greatly moved. That's in Psalm 62, 2. And then he sees that his expectation is in God, and that his feet are no longer on the shale rock from which he had been hewn, but on the eternal granite, and he says, I shall not be moved. And that's in Psalm 62, 6. And then from rich experience, he looks at the good man whose steps are ordered of the Lord, and he says, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. The experience of Paul may be seen to parallel that of David. To the Corinthians, Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles. About five years pass with all the events of those years. Paul looks down and sees the pit even deeper and tells the Ephesians that he is less than the least of all the saints. 
Finally, just before his martyrdom, he writes to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now that is true Christian progress. I find in those verses three round trips into the seventh of Romans and back into the eighth. The experiences of life may take your glance into the pit a score of times or a thousand times, but the fact that you have been identified of the Holy Spirit assures you of your passage back into ever-increasing resurrection life. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this message to our hearts. We thank thee that thou hast saved us and called us, and in that salvation and calling thou hast identified us with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. May we know what it is to live in the risen Christ. Speak to each heart in this hour. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When you trust in Christ, you receive complete forgiveness of all your sins. You also receive a new life of meaning, purpose, and power so that you can walk in holiness and serve the Lord. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Pardon for Sin and Newness of Life. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Pardon for Sin and Newness of Life, or simply request message number R6-11. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled God's Mercy, Our Salvation. The Bible declares that we are saved by grace through faith. And yet, deep down, many believers still feel that somehow our works, self-effort, or good moral character must contribute something to our salvation. This free booklet sets forth the glorious biblical truth that our salvation is completely rooted in God and based on His boundless mercy and free grace. Don't exchange the liberating power of the gospel for a cheap imitation. Ask for your free copy of God's Mercy, Our Salvation, when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is the radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888, or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.